You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and today in the classroom, I'll be speaking with Professor Andrew Flores, whose scholarship revolves around American politics, political behavior, and LGBTQ politics. So let's get started on The Politics Classroom, recorded on October 13th, 2021. Welcome back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. With me in the classroom today is Professor Andrew Flores, an assistant professor of government at American University. Professor Flores got a bachelor's degree in political science from California State University, San Bernardino, and a master's and PhD in political science at the University of California, Riverside. He's also affiliated with the Williams Institute, a think tank at the University of California, Los Angeles. He has published on a variety of topics surrounding the LGBTQ community and public opinion. Professor Flores, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Thank you for having me. I asked all of the professor folk who come on the show to tell the audience how it is that you decided to become a professor and why you chose to study LGBT issues. Thanks for the question and thanks for having me. Interestingly, my awakening to say politics um, happened when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. I graduated in 2003. And 2003 was when the U.S. Supreme Court rendered its decision in Lawrence versus Texas, mm. which was when formerly the federal government actually decriminalized, say, homosexuality. And for many individuals, gay um, and lesbian people and bisexual people, may have come to realize that there were states and jurisdictions where their own sense of self was actually uh, against the law. I thought then that institutions, laws, the courts have made a central aspect of myself political. Um, and so I wanted to more greatly understand what these systems are, how they work, in order to understand how they can potentially change. Um, and so that's really when I went into political science as my undergrad major, just to understand great, more greatly, not just the American political system, but other, uh, other systems as well. And then to understand kind of the processes through which societies and institutions change. I didn't necessarily think about pursuing a doctorate in political science and becoming a professor until I was in my later years in my undergrad, where California, where I was, legalized by the courts marriages for same-sex couples. And all that I had read about the way that court rulings on LGBTQ rights topics get discussed is that the, that the public tends to lash back to progressive decisions. Um, and so I remember worrying about what is going to be the, the backlash from this marriage decision, appreciating that it might be a positive change. 
And soon after that decision, voters passed Proposition 8 in California, mm -hmm. which was a constitutional amendment that restricted marriage or only legally recognized marriages between office, different sex couples. And so I wanted to understand the psychology of the voter, particularly when you think of California as being a, a more progressive, say, state than other states. Mm -hmm. How is it that individuals come to form their opinions and attitudes about gay rights, uh, LGBTQ topics as well, and marriage equality specifically? And are there any cognitive dissonances that they may exist? And then, of course, how do you reach people and potentially change their minds? Mm -hmm. um, and so I decided that that required further study. So I said, okay, it's time to go into get the go go get the doctorate. And Riverside was an amazing institution because uh, we were able to uh, emphasize not just in American politics but also in mass political behavior. So I had intensive courses in political psychology, mass communication, and it really started my trajectory into my career, both as a professor, but then also as someone who works in applied research. So I'm also affiliated with a research center and think tank that works on LGBTQ law and policy. Um, and so, you know, so to kind of take research and sometimes take her out of the ivory tower and actually see what it might be able to do in policymaking processes as well as in courts. Okay, so before we, we get into other questions, I wanted to have a brief conversation about terminology because terminology has changed and some things are offensive, some things are preferred in terms of referring to this very diverse community of people. So the original acronym, I guess, to try to cover the community was LGBT for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Then a Q was added for queer. And then there are a couple more letters. I guess maybe we need to have the what is sex, what is gender conversation first, and then how that applies to referencing this community. That's all great questions. So I do like to start many of my classes on LGBTQ politics kind of talking about what is sexual orientation or sexuality? What do we mean by gender? Social scientists tend to think about, say, sexuality in three overlapping, but not necessarily the same kind of constructs. So one, of course, is that you can have sexual behaviors, right? So that is just what you do and whom you may do with in terms of one's sexual actions, right? Another way of operationalizing this construct might be your attractions, right? You don't necessarily have to act on those attractions, but individuals may find that they are attracted to members of the same uh, sex or same gender to a degree. Um, and then there is, of course, identification. So how does one self-identify in terms of their sexuality? This is where we get the terms, you know, lesbian, gay, and bisexual, and they tend to be housed in the sexual identity category. And so it's important, like when you read, say, social science work um, and see how people are talking about sexuality to kind of understand that they might be using different dimensions or different lenses to kind of understand that and that these are overlapping concepts, but not the same, right? So when we're talking about gay men, per se, it does not guarantee that all gay men only have sex with men, just as you can think conceptualize straight men as not all straight men have sex with just women, right? These concepts are, I guess, in, in essence, not mutually exclusive. I want to dig into that for just a second. So if gay men don't just have sex with men, what makes them gay men and not bisexual? The identity. Oh, the identity. So, okay. Yeah. Their behavior could be 
bisexual, but their identity would, would be gay. That's definitely possible, right? Because okay. we tend to think for like the self-identification component is one, one as a personal understanding of one's self-concept uh, psychologically, but then also it can have uh, political implications as well, right? Okay. You know, the notion of coming out and coming mm -hmm. out to other people as a member of the LGBTQ community or being lesbian or gay or bisexual, right? Has with it specific meanings, right? And so someone may come out as a gay man, but in their day-to-day -day lives, perhaps they're not your per se, your Kinsey six of the world where they're totally attracted or only attracted to men. And similarly for those who may be bisexual or pansexual, but so that's just sexuality, okay, right? right? And so now yeah. we have to think about gender. Gender, now, right. Now, gender and sexual sexuality are two different concepts. It's quite often the case that people forget, and, and, I, and I remind them, uh, <laughs> uh, that people who are, say, transgender also have a sexual orientation. And that sexual orientation can be straight, can, or can be gay, can be uh, pansexual, it, it, it can vary. Okay. And so to appreciate that complexity. And then gender, of course, you know, you can think of that as also an identity, how one self identifies their gender, man, woman, transgender, genderqueer, non-binary. Um, there are terms such as demigender as well. And then you can also think of this as in relation to say the ones assigned sex at birth, which sometimes uses sex characteristics, but you can also think of biological chromosomal factors that may influence how one understands their gender. And then of course there's gender expression. So an individual may identify with a particular gender, but they may express their gender in a way that may be say more gender non-conforming. Um, and so you can have an individual that may self-identify say as man, but have a gender expression that might be not totally aligned with what society would expect of as men. And so mm -hmm. have a gender non-conforming expression. And then it's also important to appreciate that both in sexuality and in, gen and in gender, um, that these are both ways, you can think of them as the identity components as being understandings of one's self-concept. But then it's also important to understand that we're all interacting with each other in a social setting for, uh, many times, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're also being perceived by other people as potentially someone who's LGBTQ, even if you maybe not, may not be, mm. or being perceived as gender non-conforming, even if you yourself may not think of yourself as a gender non-conforming person. So it's a dynamic construct and concept that, that we ourselves understand about ourselves, but then we also interact with other people interpreting them as sexual beings or as gendered beings. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so it's um, very dynamic there. All right. So that's a little in a nutshell, the sexuality and the gender. Now, what about the terminology? Um, the terminology has, of course, changed over the years. Prior to the Stonewall riots, if you were to talk about the budding, the growing gay community, uh, the word gay was actually not even embraced mm. uh, then. Um, th this is kind of what these the organizations that we would call that emerged in the 1950s uh, tend to refer to themselves as homophile organizations, and they would call themselves homophiles um, because they didn't want to use the term homosexual because they didn't want to center a sense of their sense of self around sex. Um, okay. And so, so homophile, the, the suffix file, right, is to say a liking to. And so, um, and so they would refer to that, and we refer to those organizations historically as the homophile organizations, mm -hmm. um, adopting the terminology that they would use. Gay didn't actually come up until um, the mid 1960s, 
where an advocate, a member of these homophile organizations, Frank Kameny, staged a picket in front of the White House, and he had a sign that said, gay is good. And it wouldn't be until, say, around the Stonewall riots where you start seeing the emergence of gay as the umbrella term to kind of talk about, say, LGBTQ people at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's important to note that even people who we may think of today as, say, transgender, Uh, would also use the term gay to broadly talk about the movement they are fighting for and the movement that they are members of. There's good video footage of trans activist Silvia Rivera talking about gay power and fighting for gay liberation. And so, you know, so terminology, of course, and what is this umbrella term has developed. And then, of course, in the 70s, that with trans activism, the term which is ten, tends to be less often used these days, of course, like transsexual and transvestite, mm-hmm. uh, to describe maybe the broader pe- people who more broadly identify as transgender were used. Those terms have now become far less frequent. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we didn't really see, say, the term bisexual get incorporated into LGBTQ activism until maybe the late 80s or early 90s. Mm. And then transgender, in terms of you think of it, LGBT that the T wasn't really fully incorporated until the early 2000s. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, so terminology and who's in this umbrella category has been dynamic and kind of reflects the history of, say, the mainstream LGBTQ movement in terms of who's felt represented and who's felt like they've had a voice in terms of the decision-making that happens in terms of what are the issues to pursue and how to pursue them. And if you look at today's advocacy organizations for LGBTQ rights, um, you'll see that many of them now uh, embrace a broader spectrum of Mm -hmm. topics that try and embrace the diversity of LGBTQ people. And then also are addressing issues that may touch upon LGBTQ people, but then also intersected with, say, class, urban, rural experiences, Mm -hmm. um, um, and other things like that. Race and ethnicity, Uh, I would imagine. Yeah. And then, um, and then, of course, there's the term queer, uh, which also emerged around the 1990s as kind of a counter movement to to the mainstream gay movement. And queer was kind of an ideology that uh, kind of developed around kind of being more in your face and less respectful to, say, broader society. But uh, there have been critiques of the queer movement, um, particularly the queer movement of the 90s, in part because how they kind of conceptualized queer and talked about it was anything that was not straight was queer. So it recreated kind of this duality between gay and straight. Whereas some people said, well, the real potential of this notion of queer is that you might be able to see yourself as anything that is not, quote, societally normal, Mm -hmm. um, which can cut across, say, racial, ethnic experiences, immigrant experiences, and things like that, which could potentially build a broader coalition of what queerness might mean. So as, as so, so, so there's lots of terminologies, yeah. um, lots of ways that these words have gotten used. I've always been a little bit confused what gender non-conforming or gender non-binary means as a as an identity in the sense of, is that a rejection that society says that there are two and maybe sometimes you're you are kind of on a spectrum more towards one than the other or is it something else yeah can you please just uh explain Uh, those terms a little bit I think the answer there is yes and in the sense that some individuals who may say they're gender non-conforming or gender non-binary are individuals who may still think that there might be this construct of gender that has a masculinity and femininity and they kind of live among that spectrum 
Okay. And then there are other individuals who may be gender nonconforming who reject the idea that there is such a thing as a gender binary and that and think of gender as one of those social constructs that provides for us scripts that tell us how we ought to, as individuals, behave and act. And so all of those expectations are, are constraints on, say, your own agency, your own ability to kind of live your life sometimes. And so they, and so some individuals may just reject it entirely. Um, and then others approach it as that maybe there are not just two genders, but there are varieties of genders and genders expressions, right, um, mm -hmm. that can take on a variety of terms. Uh, and this is where you have varieties, say, in pronoun use. So I'm mm. sure you've encountered people yes. who use they, them pronouns. Sure. But there are individuals who also embrace a, a Z, Z, Z program, uh, pronouns. So it's like a Z-H-E and a Z-H-E-Y. And so it kind of speaks to different, say, understandings and ideologies around what gender is, kind of critiquing, say, broader society's embracement of this duality of gender. To boil it all down, two individuals can use the same term and then still interpret and understand that term differently. So someone who says that they are gender non-binary may have a different understanding of what that might mean for them as someone else who may also embrace that they are gender non-binary. But maybe at its core, both are kind of saying that there's this kind of rejection, fundamental rejection of this duality or this binary system of gender. You've started to talk about the history of activism on LGBTQ issues, and you've also mentioned Stonewall a couple of times. So if anybody has heard about anything having to do with LGBTQ activism historically, they've probably heard of Stonewall. But it, it was not the first nor the last mobilization of folks against police harassment. Okay, so first of all, can just for people who don't know, tell us what Stonewall was and why it is so prominent in the narrative for maybe people outside the movement and not something else. Thanks for the question. Yeah, so why Stonewall? So first, what is Stonewall? So 1969, you're in New York City, Greenwich Village, and the police are conducting what you necessarily think of as a routine bar raid. So at this time, it was not necessarily considered uh, out of the ordinary for police to raid uh, bars where there would be a clientele that would be, say, gay or LGBTQ, if you want to use a more contemporary term, in part because some of these bars were not state-sanctioned or, or um, they didn't have a license. Some of these bars were actually ran by the mafia in part because uh, liquor licensing boards wouldn't license bars if they cater to a gay clientele. Ugh. And so pushing individuals out of, say, mainstream or legal bars and putting them into places where the mafia wasn't in control. Mm. And so, you, and so uh, the Stonewall Inn was actually one of these bars that was managed by the mob. And it was at that time, you'd pay, uh, you'd likely have to pay a cover to get in, um, unless if you were someone who the individual running the door thought you would bring in other, other members, other clientele into the, into the business. It had no running water inside the bar. What? Um, no. And and then you'd, um, it was like two by fours and it was the bar. Um, and and you'd <laughs> so, pay- So really high class. Right. And you'd pay like much more money to get really cheap watered down alcohol um, sure. for an event. But it was, you know, a, a, a queer space. And sure. what was- 
And what was, imp- what was interesting about Stonewall, and particularly the night at the Stonewall riots, was that many members of the broader LGBTQ community were there. So you had, you had drag queens there, you had people of color there, you had uh, people who um, were middle class, as also those who were working class, occupying this space. And so it was a really interesting cross-section mm-hmm. of, say, LGBTQ life, say, at that time. Anyways, the bar raid happens during the process of um, and it's important to note that the mafia knew that the cops were coming that day in order for uh, in order to do the bar raid, and the police officers knew. The only people that didn't really know were the clientele that were there. Mm. Um, and so they and normally what happens is that uh, in this routine type bar raid, they arrest individuals, and sometimes those individuals, the newspapers would publish your name in the newspaper saying that you were caught in this kind of bar raid on like a a gay establishment or a gay bar, um, which had consequences because at that time there were not employment protections for women right. uh, for uh, on sexual orientation. So uh, wait, part- why, why are they arresting patrons and not the people who own the illegal bar? The good question, uh, in part because <laughs> the mafia is able to exist because they might have been tipped, paid the police and are complying with the police in some way, shape or form. Mm. In fact, when the riot emerged at Stonewall, so people, were, of course, resisted. People, uh, the police were calling down to a local precinct in order to get backup, but the that precinct was, was slow to respond in part because they were getting paid money to to not know that there was a gay bar there, right? <laughs> so, so yeah. So, so anyways. Okay, so uh, folks are being arrested in Stonewall during this raid. And- right. And then of course you have resistance. It's not necessarily clear what happened that night that made that night particularly different or distinct than other nights. But at that night we had clear resistance from uh, the police. And it's important to note that the police weren't just just arresting people. There were there was stigma, there was violence that was occurring, and people just had enough. And so much so that they were able to from the street. So these individuals got pulled out of the bar. From the street, the contingent of police that were there to put people in the paddy wagons just knew that there weren't enough. And they ran into the Stonewall Inn to seek safety. And then that's when the riot really happened. People were throwing garbage cans. There was a local hardware store. Someone got like gasoline or something that was flammable in order to, you know, to, you know, cause this riot. And the unique location of Stonewall, uh, how it's geolocated, it's a lot of cross streets and back roads. Mm -hmm. And so the police couldn't contain the space really easily. So, So part of that actually helped maintain, say, the riots. So anyways... The New York Tactical Police Force has to come out in order to quell the riot. But this would lead to several days of riots that happened afterwards. So there were demonstrations following Stonewall so the day, uh, for several days after. Mm. Um, and then a newspaper article was published a few days later about the riots, which used very stigmatizing language about mm. um, gay people. And so there was, again, another, another riot or another protest, another demonstration that happened. So anyways, so that's Stonewall. Now... Why Stonewall and not other riots? Because it's important to note that Stonewall wasn't the first. We know that there was in San Francisco, one of the earlier riots happened at Compton's Diner, which was a diner that was frequently patroned by transgender people, particularly people who were working in, say, survival sex work. What, um, what is that? Oh, like sex. sex work in order to survive yeah. because right. they can't. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I've never yeah, heard yeah. it called that. So yeah, okay. 
Yeah, and this happened in the Tenderloin district of San Francisco. Uh, and that was just one of many. There was another riot that happened in Los Angeles at the Black Cat Bar uh, that predates Stonewall as well. And we had to go, okay, well, these, these riots occurred, one in like 65, one in 1967. So four to, four to three years before Stonewall, right? So why not those places? And some our authors argue that part of the reason why we don't remember Compton's, we almost lost Compton's to history entirely. If it wasn't for historian Susan Stryker um, hmm. doing some pioneering work, we may have totally not known that Compton's actually happened hmm. because the gay magazines in San Francisco didn't cover it. In part because in San Francisco, the gay movement there had a much more, much more kinder relationship with the police than in other places. Okay. Um, and they didn't necessarily want to commemorate or um, celebrate a riot against the police. Okay. Um, and of course, you have to think about the clientele at Compton's was not necessarily your white middle-class gay man. And so, you know, so the individuals who were participating in the riots may not have been necessarily thought of as the same people that were the gay people in the Castro. So, so, maybe, okay. so that's, that's part of the explanation for maybe why not, not, why not Compton's. And then others like why not the Black Cat in Los Angeles. The Black Cat in Los Angeles, there definitely was an, an attempt to kind of mobilize against what the police were doing at that raid. But the police in Los Angeles were much more violent, actually, than, say, the police in New York. There's evidence and documentation of the police actually murdering gay men right around the time. At, um, and, and going and these individuals going unpunished in courts of law. And so some people who have studied this have, have made the case that maybe in, Los, in the context of Los Angeles, you definitely had like a, a motivation to say, to demonstrate and riot against the police and maybe potentially commemorate that. But the police presence was just too violent in order to make it, to make it possible. Okay. Uh, in, whereas in New York, you had uh, the relationship with the police was more mixed. So they weren't as violent as Los Angeles, but they weren't as friendly as in San Francisco. Uh, and so that there could be a potential that you might be able to, to make this, this moment memorable. The other thing that New York had is that in the Northeast, there was already an annual gay march that would happen. Uh, it was the Freedom Day Parades. And these Freedom Day Parades happened in Pennsylvania and happened on the 4th of July. Um, really? And yeah, and they happened several years before the Stonewall Riots. And what happened was that there was a movement by many, member, many would-be members of the Gay Liberation Front to take the, gay lib the, the Freedom Day Parades and actually change the date to commemorate the Stonewall mm. riots. Uh, and so people go, well, why a parade? Well, the parade was already a vehicle that existed, it's say, in gay organizing in the Northeast. So it was just like, we're going to take this already existing vehicle and repurpose it to commemorate the Stonewall riots. Mm. Now, of course, there were pushes and pulls about whether to do that and how to do that. But the gay liberationists did win in terms of making the year after Stone, the anniversary of Stonewall a march to kind of commemorate what the Stonewall riots meant and, and what they mean into our memory. So that's And that's, that turned into what we know of as pride? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's how we have the pride marches now. And, and why um, they're so in June. And why pride month is in June. Okay. Um, though many prides happen across the year and many different locations at many okay. different times. But, you know, the major one is June. And of course, the New York pride march is there to commemorate Stonewall. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so, of course, 
everyone knows Stonewall. Everyone thinks Stonewall started the gay rights movement or the LGBTQ rights movement, and that's all incorrect. Really what Stonewall may represent is the success of an already established, the gay liberation movement might have already been active, say, in the mid-60s. And this is just a, a signal that they, they have established a kind of new ideology around how a gay activist would do the work of activism. Mm. So it's important to note, like, the homophiles, they weren't necessarily all on board with this idea that there needed to be a public gay identity that one needs to come out and be proud about. That was a real, there, there was debate in the homophile era about okay. whether or not that would be the right strategy. But in the 60s, with the new left and other liberation movements going on at the time, there was a change in ideology about what activism meant. And part of what activism would mean is one's own self-fulfillment and psychological well-being. So that's why you have this idea of gay is good. And this is where you start seeing the development of this notion of coming out. Mm. Uh, com coming out now and coming out uh, as we think of it as in the 70s is actually not how it coming out used to mean prior to the 70s, right? Coming out was meant that you would go to like a gay establishment, like a gay bar or like, um, uh, this is particularly in the drag communities, right? And coming out was kind of like your debutante ball. You were coming oh. out to the, com to the community. You're not mm. coming out to broader society. Okay. And so in the 70s, they repurposed what this tool, what this term coming out would mean and saying that, no, this is a public expression of your, of your sexual identity to the world. And there's a big belief that, right, that by coming out, you can change people's minds because they can no longer be stigmatized. Okay. This, is a bit, this was a big thing with like Harvey Milk. Uh, right. saying, come out, come out wherever you are. Um, <laughs> and, you know, notions that we are everywhere and things like that. And just that by virtue of staying in the closet, society may not change unless people start coming out of the closet. Now, it's important to note, uh, and I'll note this, that coming out as a narrative and as a strategy, of course, was one that was adopted when the, the LGBTQ movement was primarily in control in the hands of middle-class white gay men who may have had a security, a social, mm. a social structure, a social location that may make coming out, say, possible or desirable. And that there have been critiques of this coming out strategy that may not necessarily understand people at the intersection, say, of race, gender, class, where if the notion of coming out means that you are leaving, say, one community to join the LGBTQ community, because of mm. say, the stigmas that one may face within their within a, within a different community, that that might be too much of a zero sum framing of what coming out should be, or mm. whether or not someone should be stigmatized if they haven't come out or haven't come out to a particular community. So I'll just note that um, as a kind of the imperfection, say, of this say quote political strategy that has been adopted. I've always found it. I mean, like I never came out as heterosexual, but there's an expectation that. LGBTQ people need to come out that has always seemed fundamentally unfair. Yeah. So, I mean, there's good, like good theory behind this, right? Okay. About, um, like what is the closet and is anyone ever really out of the closet? Uh, because society always puts us back in, in the sense that if you're in a new social interaction with somebody, mm. uh, you may have to re-come out. So what does it mean to actually come out as one act? And it might be several acts right and so like the expectation of heterosexuality is always upon us <laughs> right um, that's a uh, eve kasofsky sedgwick's book on uh, the epistemology of the closet goes into that a lot interesting okay i think it's maybe about do we lose something because we remember stonewall so much 
Okay. Um, and I will say that maybe it's a potential that's by virtue of Stonewall being the thing that we may have marginalized or pushed out some aspects of history, not just say the riots that happened before and slightly after the Stonewall riots, but then also the in the 1980s, late 1980s, when it came to HIV AIDS and activism around that, ACT UP was an amazingly effective movement in order to change federal policy and corporate policy around what it, uh, how it was addressing, whether it addressed and how it was addressing HIV AIDS. You know, and this was a massive movement that had many demonstrations. We, we had die-ins in, uh, in the Catholic Church, in a Catholic Church. Mm. There were people who were taking the ashes of those who have died from HIV AIDS and poured them on the White House lawn. Mm. Uh, an individual who had passed away from HIV AIDS had a funeral march in the streets of New York in order just to demonstrate the frustration, the anger that people had of the state's silence around those issues. Um, and whenever I teach my students this, they are themselves angered that they didn't learn about it yet. Mm. So, so what do we miss if we focus solely on Stonewall? <laughs> mm. So do you find any truth in the suggestion that public acceptance of the LGBTQ community was helped along by, say, the show Will and Grace, because people watched this gay man and, well, and others, and because they were non-threatening or whatever the case may be, led people to be more positively inclined toward the community? I'm trying to be brief or quick in my explanation, but uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Gerritsen, has a whole book on this. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, where he tries to examine one mass media attention to, say, uh, LGBTQ people, not just say in representations of this uh, entertainment media, but also news media. Okay. And what that might mean in terms of social change and like public opinion change. And he proposes at least two mechanisms and has some empirical support for both. One is, of course, by having greater representation, you're putting a face to the label of who gay people are, who lesbians are, LGBTQ. And by doing so, giving people an opportunity to kind of see the lived experiences, even if, even if mediated through a certain type of lens of okay. LGBTQ people. And that might be in some way, shape or form normalizing and that could potentially reduce people's prejudices. And there have been studies that show, if you do show people, uh, show LGBTQ people to say non-LGBTQ people um, that their expressed levels of prejudice tend to be reduced. Hmm. Um, the, the other potential mechanism here is that by increasing the representation of LGBTQ people on mass media, remember mass media, is that you're allowing a whole generation, say, of younger individuals who they may, might themselves be identified as LGBTQ in some way, representation. And so uh, Dr. Gerritsen actually shows that if you look at the rates in which people say that they know someone who's gay and look at the, like, the number of gay characters, that you see that they correlate quite well. Mm. And so he actually thinks that he suspects that by having increased representation, you encourage younger people who may not have, mm. might, might, that would, might, might not have come out to come out. Um, and so increasing, say, the, the, the number of people who actually come to know LGBTQ people. We think that that's an indirect mechanism of the way that TV and our mass media environment can kind of influence um, our social surroundings. Interesting. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. 
Welcome back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and I've been interviewing Professor Andrew Flores, an assistant professor of government at American University. I want to look at official politics through the lens of Supreme Court decisions that have affirmed LGBTQ rights. Lawrence v. Texas, which said that sodomy laws were, anti-sodomy laws were illegal. The Obergefell versus Hodges that made same-sex marriage legal throughout the United States. But before we talk about those, are there any notable cases from history that went the other way, that affirmed that discrimination was fine or differential treatment was A-OK with the Supreme Court? Sure. That means I, I won't hit every single court sure. case. Sure. <laughs> But I think it's important to note that one of the first wins for the LGBTQ movement was actually a First Amendment case. Uh, hmm. This was when it was one magazine, one of the magazines that was gay-focused for one of these early homophile organizations, was the U.S. Postal Service would not deliver the magazine, claiming that it was obscene. Right. And so it was an obscenity case that that, that they won uh, in at the U.S. Supreme Court, that these materials were not obscene, and so that way you can have the production of materials, not just magazines, but now you can think of books and other things that can have gay content in it. It was the post office's belief that just having gay content made it obscene. Not, it's not like it wasn't like a, a playgirl type, no, you know, like no, 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 obscene no, yeah, yeah. photos or anything. It was just no. the content of talking about gay people yeah, made it, it obscene. Was just, yes. It was just that it had, that it talked about gay people, right? So it wasn't pornography or anything like that. So anyway, that was an early case. And one of the other early cases was just trying to create a legal group to help LGBTQ advocacy. They, they would deny this organization nonprofit status because they didn't view the work of the group. They saw the work of the group as inherently, say, political. And so they would deny nonprofit status. And so that had to get fight all the way up to the Supreme Court as well. And the Supreme Court sided with the LGBTQ advocates. So early cases were just rights rights to create uh, rights to assembly and speech issues um but anyways the major case that i think that people would point to as as the case that kind of set the stage for what we saw for like 1990s to 2000s activism is uh bowers versus harflick uh the ruling in bowers um this is a 1980s case basically was the complete opposite of lawrence versus texas that the state can criminalize uh, homosexual conduct, and that is perfectly fine. It does not run against the due process clause of the 14th Amendment or the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment, basically because they pointed to history and tradition. They, They looked at the long history of laws that have been on the books that have criminalized homosexuality, um, and basically said it's been a long history and tradition for the state to kind of criminalize this conduct, and then also said that what are the state's interests here? And the state does have an interest, say, in promoting a moral, a moral and just society. And so Bowers came down in the mid-1980s. Some scholars actually make the argument that the Bowers decision was one of the last straws, uh, which really motivated people to actually get into the activism that ACT UP did that I described earlier. Mm. Because HIV AIDS was ravaging the gay community when Bowers came down. But if you looked at what the activism was around HIV AIDS around that time, it was a lot of mourning, sadness, and loss. Mm. Um, and you had the establishment and development of the AIDS quilt, which was a memorializing of the, of the loss of life, whereas the anger that kind of popped up after the Bowers decision kind of said, no, we need to do more than just mourn our losses. We need to blame and shame uh, the institutions that have made these losses possible. 
and so it's uh, so the placebo link devours that. So, anyways, that would probably be the major decision. So, criminalizing gay conduct would be so, like, if two lesbians kissed in a street, that would be illegal. I think you have to look at the text of the document of the law, but I think when you think of anti-sodomy, uh, I think it still has to be sexual conduct. Um, okay. And I'd have to. I, I'm. No lawyer, but I, I can sure. try and try and put my lawyer hat on. But these anti-sodomy laws were broad enough that would criminalize anything that was not, say, heterosexual intercourse. This, this, so this would criminalize, say, even like say oral sex, even between two people who are the who are different genders. And so, and Bowers, the question was more broadly about these 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 laws and policies, and kind of made a little special like carve out that said like homosexual conduct can still be criminalized. Because this is that there was a development from like the 70s to the 80s of like a right to privacy. Mm -hmm. And what does that right to privacy mean? And so when do you find a privacy right versus when do you not? And so Bowers came on the side that criminalizing homosexual conduct does not run afoul to say a right to privacy, which Lawrence versus Texas, the U.S. Supreme Court came on the complete different side. I guess what I'm not understanding is how you get plaintiffs for this case. If people are engaging in public displays of sex, it shouldn't matter what the the sexes or genders of the people are, right? Having sex in public is, is probably not a great thing. And if people are engaging in behavior behind closed doors, how does anybody know to go arrest them? So Lawrence versus Texas has a story there. Some of it is fable now because of podcasts, actually. So some of the litigants have been able to tell a little bit more of the story. Okay. But the fabled story, at least the story that I, I tell my students about Lawrence, is like, of course, how did the police know? The story is maybe, um, is that it was like a threesome that went bad. And so one of the individuals left the space and called the police to tell them what was going on. And the police entered the space, um, and I believe they, were, uh, they had a warrant for a different type of search. Mm. Um, and so they entered the space. Uh, and they found Lawrence engaged in conduct in his own private, in his own room, right? right? And the police didn't find anything relevant to the warrant, but they could arrest Lawrence based upon the conduct because it was still against Texas's law uh, to engage in homosexual conduct. So that's okay. how you actually got that case into the courtroom, right? And that's sometimes the, the tricky thing with lots of, with the legal strategy when it comes to pursuing, say, rights issues, right? Is that you know, you have to have the right litigants, you have to have the right facts of the case in order to pursue, you know, these types of these types of questions. And so but absent Lawrence, it's important to note that states were gradually decriminalizing homosexual conduct anyway. Um, in fact, not even with the LGBT advocates movements uh, at some times. A lot of states adopted the model legal code. Mm -hmm. And that model legal code actually didn't actually decriminalize homosexuality. Uh, and that was just something that happened through the advocates of like trying to make the criminal system more uniform across the states, right? And that led to a lot of decriminalization. So Obergefell versus Hodges made same-sex marriage legal throughout the United States. And I don't know if it was that case or a similar case that states had to recognize marriages performed in other states. But this has come back into the news recently because uh, Supreme Court Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito wrote suggesting that they wanted to revisit the Obergefell decision over religious liberty issues that I think the case was the Supreme Court denied hearing the case but thought that there was room maybe for a case to come that a clerk in some courthouse 
on religious reasons, didn't want to issue marriage licenses and had to, despite her religious objections, because of Obergefell. So we see this in terms of like abortion issues and, you know, that, that religious liberty, individual religious liberty trumps broad social issues. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about A, Obergefell and what it did for the community and why one person's objection to same-sex marriage should not be a reason to invalidate marriage for all same-sex couples everywhere? A couple things. One, of course, yeah, I do recall when Thomas and Alito kind of hinted at the fact that a Burgerfell v. Hodges might have been one wrongly decided or um, too sweeping of, a, of an opinion that may not necessarily have paid attention to, say, the religious liberty, or as Anthony Justice Kennedy would say, the dignity of people who have strongly held religious beliefs. Uh, though I think even Kennedy in his writing of a lot of, because he, he has written many of the decisions around LGBT rights, kind of has developed this language around dignity that embraces, uh, say, gay people or same-sex couples, but um, leaves a, quite a bit of wiggle room, per se, for other individuals to make a dig dignity claim. So, and, and that's where you start seeing these this butt up against the First Amendment versus, say, the 14th Amendment. And, the, and as you mentioned, you've seen this before. You've seen it, you see it when it comes to questions around abortion. And I'm sure if you look back in the history books, you'll see that there might have been other, other situations and cases where you see religious claims being pit set against maybe other claims. So, so one, maybe it's not exactly entirely new. So to answer your first question, though, uh, what, is, what does a Burgerfell mean? Well, a Burgerfell, of course, is, as you mentioned, legalized recognition of same-sex couples to marry, right, across the states. There was a prior decision that happened two years before that struck down a portion of the Defense of Marriage Act. Mm. Uh, which basically enabled same-sex married couples to uh, receive federal benefits um, mm. to gain federal recognition. So, of course, it has its direct effect, right, in terms of by virtue of, it, of, of a Burgerfell being decided, you did have several same-sex couples go get married, right, mm -hmm. and have plenty of wedding celebrations. It also had rippling effects because um, in many jurisdictions, it came questions about, like, parenting rights and adoption mm -hmm. rights for same-sex married couples. Mm -hmm. And um, in many of those cases, you know, citing Obergefell, courts have said, well, we're going to, as we understand Obergefell, we're going to see you as a married couple and you can have, and you are, have adoptive rights by virtue of that. So just as with many major decisions, there have been subsequent cases that have given Obergefell, say, more legs, right, mm -hmm. to kind of understand its reach, but then also to potentially understand where are its limits. And one of those potential limits are these religious liberty claims. And it's important to note that right after Obergefell was decided, if you looked at state legislative proposals around religious liberty, shot up by a whole lot. So mm. a lot of states considered new policy. And if you actually listen to the legislative debates, I've listened to several, uh, some from Florida, some from other jurisdictions. And basically you have lawmakers that propose these legislation going, you know what, the U.S. Supreme Court made its decision and now we need to make pass this law in order to protect some subsets of individuals within the state. And sometimes they're saying, some of, the, some of these are just called pastor protection acts. Basically, if a pastor doesn't want to perform a same-sex marriage that they face like a legal liability for not doing so. But other policies were much more expansive where you can, where not just pastors, but say 
small businesses or just businesses in general can refuse to say provide services to a same-sex couple if they have a sincerely held religious belief that tells them that they should not be able to that they don't want to honor say a same-sex marriage so those policies get proposed many of them get put into law and so you see kind of this is kind of like a an innovation per se of the what some might call the religious right um, as a way of kind of uh, making a new claim after Obergefell was decided. So that's kind of the immediate development around marriage equality. I guess my issue with this idea of a clerk of the court not wanting to issue a marriage license seems fundamentally different to me than a baker not wanting to bake a cake, right? I mean, like if you are an employee of the state in your official capacity, I would think that your religious objections do not get to overrule state policy. I guess that's what I don't understand. Okay, you're the clerk of the court. Part of the job of a clerk of a court is to issue marriage license. If you don't want to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, stop being a clerk of the court. Rather than deny people constitutional rights based on your religion. Uh, well, I mean, the court... It has been wrestling with this question even more recently. So you're talking about a county clerk who's exercising, say, state authority uh, by virtue of being a representative or an agent of the state at the time. Uh, the court just recently had a case where the city of Philadelphia would contract mm-hmm. with foster care system or foster care organization, and that foster care organization had religious ties and would not license same-sex couples and then therefore pursue, say, foster processes with same-sex couples. Uh, they would just be redirected to other agencies, to other foster care agencies where they might be able to receive service. And so the city of Philadelphia actually has a non-discrimination ordinance in the city about, uh, and you can't discriminate on the basis of, say, sexual orientation. And that all city contractors, or all contractors that contract the city, uh, have to abide by that non-discrimination ordinance. And so Mm. the city of Philadelphia decided to no longer contract with this organization, and the organization sued. This went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, And the U.S. Supreme Court decided in favor of the foster care agency. This is the city of Philadelphia versus Fulton case, saying that there was a a First Amendment claim there. And though I I believe that many people, when they read this opinion, they read it as a very narrow opinion. It does kind of signal that, you know, if the state is going to, if there's going to be this like tension between religious liberties and non-discrimination, is that the state has to sincerely consider in its in its evaluation of making a decision the religious the sincerely held religious beliefs of organizations or individuals in its conduct. And I think that's kind of where we are in say current case law as it relates to these two yeah. two competing claims. I mean, so. it just it just <laughs> seems to me that if I want to do work and get paid by the city and the city is hiring an agency to facilitate foster care, I guess I don't understand what's the difference between discrimination based on race. I mean, uh, we, we, won't, uh, we won't certify Black foster parents. I guess you couldn't argue like, well, maybe you could find some way to argue sincerely held religious beliefs or something, but it just seems like like they should be treated the same. And yet somehow they're not because religions have a problem. This is also a tension in part because, you know, the first amendment is there and it has the establishment clause and, you know, and so the free exercise of religion is written into the constitution. 
Whereas when it comes to LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ people in the law, right? A lot of the times the, the rights claims are based on substantive due process in the 14th Amendment or the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause is right. uh, normally where you think of where you find fundamental freedoms. So do you have a fundamental right to marry per se? Uh, but it's also where you find, say, questions in which the state treats treats people differently. And does by the state treating people differently, does that run afoul of the equal protection clause? Okay. And the court has like established standards of whether or not certain types of classifications deserve, say, a higher level of scrutiny by the court. So for example, if the court, if the state law uses race as a category to treat people differently. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of laws will be held to a standard of like strict scrutiny. That okay. means you know, most likely in, in many cases, the state law or policy that tried to treat people differently on the basis of race would be ruled unconstitutional. And it's an unconstitutional violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Okay. Well, the states or the court's establishment of what, what types of groups deserve, say, this higher standard uh -huh. uh, is one narrow. It's not that many groups and gay people are not one of them. Okay. Um, and so this is actually the confusing thing in constitutional law. If you look at Justice Kennedy's decisions from Romer versus Evans and Lawrence and Obergefell, never really uses the language around equal protection that say that most constitutional legal scholars are used to and started developing this dignity argument, but not necessarily saying anything about whether gay people are a suspect class where you are deserving of a higher standard of scrutiny. And so it's kind of this gray area, per se, in law, where mm -hmm. even le legal scholars just go, you know, for some reason, many and we can look at back at many cases, and LGBT or gay people have won and have won on claims on the 14th Amendment, but the court never set, established this higher standard of scrutiny. And so the, the weakest test for the court on the 14th Amendment is known as the rational basis test. And so basically it's just like, well, there's something more than just rational basis going on here because the state keeps on losing. <laughs> um, and so some people have said, maybe there's rational basis plus or rational basis with bite that is somehow in effect when gay rights are on the court, but maybe not other issues. But all to say is that when you think about religious liberty claims and claims based on say discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, the way the court approaches the test may in some way, shape or form, prioritize religion mm. because there are the clauses in the constitution that do explicitly have religious content or religious meaning for the religious liberties. Whereas when it comes to how you treat, say, LGBTQ people or gay people, that, you know, the, the law is a little bit more fuzzy. What would it take for them to establish such higher level of scrutiny? They just say it in a decision like... Well, we have uh, determined that this group is in our higher level of scrutiny group. Yeah. Huzzah. So that's a good question. One, the court since like the 80s has been less likely to claim or say that a group, uh, any group is worthy of higher standard of scrutiny. So that's one thing. It's just like a trend. Similarly, when it comes to like fundamental freedoms, the court has used less and less language about what kind of freedoms are fundamental. Mm. And now they start talking about liberty interests. So you have a liberty interest in some things, um, but maybe it's not a fundamental freedom. So all this to say is that the court then is getting more deferential to the state, allowing the state to do what it wants to do and maybe not get involved in not overturning a bunch of, of law. But historically, the court has set some basic criteria for whether or not a group would be considered a suspect class. Normally, this is like a, a history of state persecution or marginalization. 
Check. Um, the other one being lacking uh, the political power to rely on the political branches to receive, to pursue change. Some people argue that, you know, and some people just look at numbers and say, if you just look at the number of people who are out LGBTQ legislators, they are never going to be a majority right. of a legislative district or maybe, maybe a small district. Because I have to say Palm Springs, I think, is all the people on the city council, I think, are LGBT in some way, hmm. shape or form. But very rarely, uh, say in a state or um, at, the, at the national level. So maybe there's a case for the lacking political power. The third criterion is that the group is discreet and insular. And what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, basically that the group can be kind of identified and maybe uh, by virtue of historical patterns of discrimination are kind of set apart from broader society. So you could think of this as maybe the creation of, say, gay centers in certain, set, in certain city centers, right? But what this also relies upon or what this also implies, this discrete and insular criterion is that the group is countable and somehow weight in some way, shape or form stable. And this mm. is why, uh, or this is in part why you see some legal scholars embracing this born this way language when it comes to being gay or born this way language when it comes to being trans, because they are wanting to make a claim that, you know, that there's this stability of one's sexual identity or the stability of one, this fixedness of, mm -hmm. of, of, of these categories, because that fixedness also speaks to that discreteness, right? Mm -hmm. It's a group and it's a group that you can identify and it's a group that is in, a, in essence kind of fixed, which, you know, a lot of the sciences kind of still say sexuality is complicated. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's that criterion that has not been met. But, but like I said, the court has been far less interested in claim, making new groups or other groups suspect classes. Wow. Well, we are out of time, but I'm going to have to ha ask you back into the classroom because I wanted to talk about something you touched on in your final answer about data and how we know numbers of the community, et cetera. So hopefully you'll be able to carve out some time for that. I want to thank Professor Andrew Flores, an assistant professor of government at American University for coming into the classroom and educating me because there was a lot of that that I didn't know. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. I want to thank Professor Andrew Flores, an assistant professor of government at American University for being with us in the classroom today. That's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed.